Amen. It truly is. It truly is a, a privilege. I'm just trying to tidy this up. Make room. It truly is a, a privilege and a blessing to be able to, to, to worship with you and to bring um, the word of God, a, a message that I believe is, is very important. And uh, every single one of us needs to hear. Um, let's one more time just turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is all done for you, for your glory, for the glory of your son. All is in vain if you do not help. Lord, help me to speak and help those who hear to hear. And may we all from this time leave knowing that we have met with thee, the triune, the living God. May we know this, Lord, not by simple theory and doctrine, but may we know this in experience, Lord. May this be real, living, vital and true. We long for this. We need this, Lord. We need you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Satisfy our souls. We look up to you now and we pray through the only name worthy, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So if you could turn to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. And I'll read down from verse 1 down to verse 6. So for verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore, have I uttered that? I understand not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye see, seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I remind you here of, of the context of Job. As, as most of you well know, the story of Job. Job is a righteous man, a godly man who, unknown to him, Satan has Gone out, gone out of his way, really, to, to bring him down, to cause him to fall, to undo him and get him to curse God. And with that, you know, he, 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 uh, he goes into terrible affliction. He loses all he has, all the material blessings he has. He loses family. He loses everything. Children, it's all gone. And now at this point in the story, in the last chapter, he's sitting in dust and ashes. Scripture says he has to scrape the boils and off his skin. Such was his affliction. Such was his suffering. And as you know, early on, he has a few of his friends come round to the house and they look to grieve and to mourn with him. And they prove to be not so really good comforters, do they? They are very quick to, 
to accuse him and to what to, to begin a, a theological discussion of why the righteous really cannot suffer and why Job you have you, you must have sinned to be in this position. And so what ensues for, for 38 chapters is this theological debate. Uh, Job's friends speaking of God and Job answering back and they speak of a, a theory of God. They speak the philosophy of God. They speak really, I would say, as God as a, an ABC kind of an impersonal force, you know, it, it's, it's clear why this is happening. It, they speak as though they can understand who scripture says, him who walks, his footsteps are in the ocean, his footsteps are in the sea. They think that they can grasp him, the true and living God. And they do not speak of him, I would say, as, as a personal God. A God who is known not in only in theory, but in reality. A God who can be known experientially and I would say as you read and you hear the murmurings and the complaints of Job that's that's where his heart is he he, he responds to his friends he says I, I know that God is almighty I know he can do all these things I know but I need to appear before him I need his presence I need to utter my complaint where is he Job in the midst of his suffering needs more than just the theory and philosophy and even the theology of God. Yes, he needs that, but he needs to appear before him. He needs to know God experientially. That's his cry. You see that in Job 23, he utters, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I, may cut, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And you know, in chapter 38, we're told that God comes. He comes to Job in a whirlwind. And Job is told to, to brace himself, to, to, to strengthen all his mental powers as, as God now begins to question Job. And God speaks of nothing extraordinary. He, he tells Job about the goat. He tells Job about the Leviathan. He tells Job about things that he already knew. But God spoke of it in such a way that when Job's hearing it, his, his, he, 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 he's seen it in a way that he's never seen it before. The common things of life. God says, look at the common things of life. You don't even understand these. Let alone, how can you understand me who governs the universe? Forces and powers that you do not even know of. Amen. And so Job, as it were, is silenced and God speaks again in Chapter 41, and at the end of this, we have the text that I read there in verse uh, 6, well, verse 5. That will be the focus of, 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 our, of our message. But in verse 5, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. See, when God comes, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Some, something has happened to Job through this, this personal encounter with God. Job is now a, a transformed man. This encounter has changed him and his restless soul, his soul that was full of confusion and turmoil and trouble and is now put at rest. He humbles himself. He quiets his soul. And he worships. 
he repents. Notice Job is still in his suffering. God has not given an explanation for his suffering. God has not told him why this has happened. Job is still there, covered in the boils, covered in the dust and ashes, still in his affliction. Yet now, because he has met face to face with God, now he is at peace. Let all those things go. I've seen him. I've seen the living God. Mine eye have seen thee. And so Job, he has heard the voice that calms the waves. He has felt the... He has felt that the healing touch of God, he has seen the beauty of the Lord and now he worships. And, and, and my friends, there is no time I believe now in our, in our present context that ne- necessitates such a reminder that God is experiential, that we can know God on a deeper level, that God is not simply Yes, theology, the doctrine, the theory is so important. Of course, everything we do is is in the bounds of scriptures. But we can know the God of the scriptures. We can know him. You can know God. Not just have your correct thesis and whatnot, but you can know him truly. And that needs to be reminded. We need to be reminded because I believe and I say that there's so many who believe themselves to be saved, who believe themselves to be right with God. And if you ask them why, well, they would say, they, they would recite the gospel, yes. They would recite the doctrines. They would recite the confessions. They know them. But when it comes to knowing God experientially, they have no idea. They know the doctrines. They know the theory. They have the philosophy. And so in this day, in this day, I believe more than any other, we have a Christianity void of its power, void of its efficacy, void of its transforming effect. Because we present people with doctrine and say, well, that's it. No, you must know God for yourself, for yourself. And so that will be the focus. Quickly, Job will be, as it were, a pattern for us. His experience, of course, is not our experience but in some ways I believe we can relate in some ways we can draw from this experience of Job his encounter with God and see how it fits how it applies for us but I I throw in a warning from the outset I want to say that experience I'm going to be speaking of experience but experience is not the determining factor of truth of course not The scriptures, this book determines everything we believe. And on this book, we live, die, we build. Everything is done on the scriptures. But we can't neglect the reality of experience. Scripture doesn't neglect the reality of experience. There is biblical experience. There is experiential Christianity. I mean, think of basic repentance and faith. That's an experience. You have to repent. You have to have a time where you can put it back and say, well, I repented. It was an experience. And you have to be repenting still. Faith is something to be experienced. You, you know when you believe the assurance of faith. And even when we speak of God, even when the scriptures speak of God, they speak of him as not simply a, a philosophy, a theory. They speak of him as a God who can be tasted, a God who can be known. We can taste the goodness of the Lord. We're not simply to have the doctrine of God's love, but Romans 5, 5 says the love of God must be shed abroad in our hearts. We're not simply to have 
the theory of his power, but we are to know his power. We are to know his strength. We are to know these things. We're not simply to come, well, to form opinions of Christ, but we're to drink off him. We're to feed on his flesh and drink his blood. We are to know him. These are all experiential realities, aren't they? Taste and touch. And these are all things that happen and we experience. And so this takes place. This knowing God takes place on the level of our souls and spirits. Just like my five senses, our five senses communicate with the world, the physical world, the senses of our spirit and soul communicate with the heavenly world, communicate with God. Our spirits communicate with God. And so my desire is that we would walk out here today with a renewed hunger to know this God, to know him more intimately. That we would, yes, have the theory and the facts. I'm not speaking against doctrine at all but that we would see that there are realms to christianity that we really don't know anything about that there are experiences that we can have of god that we haven't we haven't begun to or i haven't to anyway we haven't begun there's so much more in god so much more and so notice firstly in verse five that a genuine experience of God this knowing God well it's it's personal Job says mine eye my eye have seen thee a true experience of God is really known by the saint alone it's intimate it's personal such an experience is not shared you could be in a a, a room where it may be the spirit of God may fall on a, a multitude and everyone is saying God is here but you may be in a service where it's only you Only your heart is being warmed. Only you're being convicted. Everyone else is normal. But God is dealing with you. It's an experience that is is personal. God deals with you, the individual. He comes to you, the individual. As Moses must go up to the mountain alone to be with God. And as Jesus Christ in the early mornings would slip away to be in prayer. Alone with his God. So when God deals with us, he comes, he comes to you. Doesn't go to anyone else, he comes to you. As he came to Job and says, brace yourself. When God begins to deal with you, you can feel as though it's just you and God in the world. There's just you two as he deals with you. But let's even be more, more detailed. Let's be more detailed. What can we actually, what can we, yes, it's personal, it's intimate. But what does this look like? Well, firstly, I would like to say that we experience, we have an experiential knowledge of his power. You see that with Job. It's interesting to note. I mean, what does he say there in, in verse two? I know that thou can doest everything. That no thought can be withholding from thee. I know now that God, you can do anything, anything. You know, Job had spoke like this before and so did his friends. You go there in, 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 in chapter nine, Job says, um, you know, he says from verse four, who is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who have hardened himself against him and have prospered, speaking to God, which removeth the mountains 
and they know not which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treads upon the waves of the sea, which makes the Articus, the Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Job has already been speaking of the almighty power of God. Job is not saying anything new. He's not saying anything new. Job knows that God is almighty, omnipotent. He knows that. He's heard of that. This refers, I believe, to the hearing of the ear. He knows the doctrine of it. He understands it. He understands it. But now he sees God's power in such a way that he says, well, <laughs> now I see it with my eye. Now I see it on a deeper level. And so that the power of God becomes not merely a truth out there for Job. Not merely is the power of God seen in his, in his governance of creation. But now the power of God is known in the depths of his soul. It becomes real. It becomes felt. It becomes known. Look, to help us under, grasp this, you know, when, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and we inherited that, that sinful nature, you know, due to sin, when, when God left Adam, chaos ensued, not only in creation, but in the soul of every person who were to live after him, in all his prosperity. That, that chaos was inherited. That, that restlessness was inherited. And so due to, to sin and self, you would say the soul of, of man is a restless place. You know, what are we but tossed to and fro by our passions, our desires, our lusts, our worries, our cares, our thoughts, our concerns? The soul of man is a restless place. I know it can be like that for me sometimes. So many cares, so many concerns, so many sins, so many issues, so many problems. And I think nothing so agitates our, our, our sinful nature, our, our, our fallen humanity, nothing agitates it so much than suffering. I mean, you see that Satan, he comes to, to, he comes to, to God and he says, Job, yes, he's a righteous man, a man who's the most godly in, in all the earth. But look, let me, let me, let me put him in the furnace and then you'll see his sin rise. Put him in suffering, agitate the sin nature within him. Then you'll see it happen. You know, it's like if you get a, a, a towel comes to mind from earlier, a towel and it's filled with dust. You, you know, you grab it and you shake it and the dust goes everywhere. And in the same way, when someone goes into suffering, then you see their real character. You know, how many do I know believers will profess to be believers, seem to be good, strong saints. And then when they get put into suffering, what happens? They fall away. They fall away. They turn away from God. But when God draws near, though our souls can be so restless like a storm upon the sea, waves blowing to and forth, tossing and turning. But when God draws near and speaks, peace be still, then are our hearts put at rest. 
Then is the turbulence quieted. Then do the storms cease. Then are our sins and lusts subdued. And as it was with, with Jesus when he spoke to the sea, a supernatural calm descends upon our soul. And then we can say, return, oh my soul, return to your rest for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I hope, I hope I'm communicating the difference here. I hope it's clear. What would calm the troubles of Job's heart? I, I really encourage you to read, read the book of Job when you get time, but what would encourage his heart and his, and his, and his, and his confusion and the turmoil and distress? You know, it was not so much that the problem for Job was out there, it was in here. It was the problems he, that's where he was questioning God. In the level of his own soul. This confusion, this agony, this chaos, this, this sense of pain. God, where are you? He even said, Lord, take my life. I don't want to live. I don't want to live. And it was in that way he thought, well, God cannot get me here. God cannot deal with this here. This is too much. And so now when God draws near to him and he experiences the power of God in a new way and he really realizes that God can speak into the deepest parts of our hearts, that those areas in our souls that are so restless, God can put at rest. When we come to know that easy yoke, Well, then we're able to say, I've heard of thee with the ear, but now my eye have seen thee. Your power, O God, is not simply something to be observed in creation. Yes, but something that I know. You have given me peace when I thought there was no peace. Saints, you know something of this, surely. God has given peace in your heart when you thought, there's no way I could be at rest again. And so not only experiential knowledge of his power, but also I'd like to highlight, I believe here, an experiential knowledge of God's omnipresence, his presence. And again, Job had heard the report. Again, I commend you, read the 38 chapters. He knows that God is in all places at all times. He knows that he is present everywhere in his fullness at all times. He knows that there is nowhere you can go that God is not. That he fills the heavens and the earth. He knows these sins. He has the doctrine. He has it clear. He knows nothing is hid from God's sight. But when the Lord manifests himself in a whirlwind, well, this is altogether different for Job, isn't it? This is altogether different. He now not only knows the doctrine, but that reality, that truth that God is present in all places becomes something real. It becomes something real to him. It becomes life. It becomes intimate. It becomes personal. God now, as it were, invades his personal space. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know someone who likes to. No, there's some people, who, you know, who just kind of invade your personal space, you know, and, and you feel it. You know, when someone comes into your personal space, you feel a bit like, OK, you're too close. My friends, when God draws near to us, he comes into our personal space. We sense it. We know that he is here. We know that he is close. It can be known. By his spirit, he comes close and Job is experiencing this. He knows it. His soul and sense are aware that God is present and that God now is dealing with him. 
This is genuine. This is biblical experience of God. Now, I'm not saying we should go be praying looking for a whirlwind and God to speak out the whirlwind. But there are other means. There are other ways there that God draws near, doesn't he? You know, you may come to a service like this on a cold morning and you sing the hymn and everything seems normal and everything just seems like another time at church, another service. And all of a sudden, maybe a truth begins to impress upon your soul. And as you begin to hear the preaching, your heart begins to be warmed or stirred or convicted. And, and the secret intentions of your heart are revealed, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14. And you know that God is dealing with you. You know that God is doing something. He's dealing with me. You know this. Or you may be out in the night, in a clear night, having a, a, a prayer walk or a time of prayer and you're looking at the stars and you're overwhelmed all of a sudden by the majesty of God, his power, his grandeur. You're overwhelmed by just, the, the, I don't know the word. Just, <laughs> I haven't got the word, but you know what I'm talking about. And it's as though in that moment, God draws near to your soul and he says, look what my hands have made. I've got you. Look at the stars. None of them are missing. Not one of them is gone from my sight. Do you think I've let go of you? Or you may be walking one day down a nice pathway in the spring and there's flowers in their blossom and bloom and all of that's going on. And it's as though the spirit of God draws near to you and you hear the verse and it says, well, why do you worry? Look at the flowers of the field. Does God not clothe them? Does God not take care of the lilies? Does God not clothe the fields? How much more of you, O oh little faith? Or you may know of a time when you're driving, driving home, not thinking maybe much on God. And then all of a sudden, you feel overwhelmed. I don't know, maybe you have a thought of Christ and the cross or something. And all of a sudden you're overwhelmed by God and his love to such an extent. You just want to pull over and praise God. I think this is amazing. He saved me. You know, these, some people would say, well, this is just emotional fluctuations or whatever. No, biblically informed people. No, this is when God draws near to the soul. This is God. Yes, he's everywhere. He's present here. He's here right now. He's here. He's in this room. He's with every single one of you. He's here. But there are specific times and moments when God, as it were, peels back, uh, comes near and you sense God is here. He manifests himself, his presence. And then you're able to say concerning his omnipresence, well, I've heard only by the ear, but now my eye CFD. And lastly, third point, we have an experiential knowledge of his holiness as well. And, and, and this just follows suit, doesn't it? God is holy. And so when God draws near, you realize your smallness. You realize, you realize how low grade you are compared to him. You feel, you feel. Not only do you know your sin, you know, many people know by doctrine, yes, they would say, I'm a sinner. But when God comes close, you're, you're made to feel your sin. You feel that you're lost. You feel that you're undone. You feel as though you're in the presence of one who is holy. 
You know, this is the universal experience of the saints, isn't it? You look in scripture, think of Isaiah when God comes in Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah sees the holiness of God. What does he do? What does he say? He says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm undone. I've seen the king. He sees the holiness of God and his, he's about to melt in the, in the presence of God. And this righteous prophet Isaiah says, my mouth is unclean and everyone around me is unclean. He sees sin as though he's never seen it before. Think of David in a psalm, I believe Psalm 143, he says, I have no good but you. He knows, he knows that in the presence of God, well, if who should mark it, if he should mark iniquities, who could stand? I mean, think of Peter when the Lord Jesus performs the miracle of the fish and Peter comes up to the Lord Jesus and he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Go, Lord. You are holy. I am not. I'm sure Peter before that probably thought he was an all right guy. But when God, who is light of light, truest light, uncreated light, when he comes close to you, you've never seen anything. You, you don't, we don't know anything like this. We're in a culture and a society that drinks iniquity like water. Every day we are accustomed by sin. We don't even know and see how black we are because we're in it all the time you know if you like you don't smoke and you go into an elevator full of smoke immediately you're like oh it's really bad but if you were to stay in there for 10 minutes you'll become used to it and in the same way we're so used to the sin we're so accustomed we're so surrounded by sin it becomes so normal it's the atmosphere in which we live and breathe and so when one who is truly holy god the holy one comes close when he draws near when he manifests himself well you're humble I mean what does Job say I repent in dust and ashes I abhor myself I abhor myself not only when God draws near not only do we sense his holiness but we our souls are made holy as well you know, think of Jesus and the leper. And I love, I love that miracle when the leper comes to Jesus and no one's touched him for how long? Because they don't want to catch, they want to be contaminated. But he comes to Christ and what does Christ do? Christ touches him. And instead of Jesus, instead of Christ becoming contaminated, the leper, as it were, takes on his holiness. He becomes clean. And so when God draws near, when God has interactions with your soul, when he communes with you, we're made holy. We take on his holiness. We share in his holiness. In his presence, we are made clean and every stain of sin is purged as white as snow. And you can, as I said, see this in Job. He's still in his affliction at this point. He is still Nothing's changed his situation. God has met with him, yes. But he sees, well, Lord, how can I have been complaining? How can I have been speaking of things too wonderful for me? How can I have been accusing you of, of injustice? And how can I have been saying you do not govern this world? You've not dealt with me rightly. He says, I forsake that. I abhor myself. How can I say these things? You are holy holy and he abhors himself 
who doesn't oppose God, he oppose himself. He's transformed. He sees his need to repent. He reclines and worships in the beauty of holiness. And so, my friends, from this, the application, I believe, is simple. The question is simple. Do you know God in this way? I'm not asking you, do you have the doctrine? I'm not asking you, can you recite to me the Westminster Confession? Or can you tell me about election or predestination? Or can you tell me about the cross? And, and I'm not asking that, but do you know God? Do you have an experiential knowledge of God? Or do all you have are simply the bones? But do you have flesh in your experience? Do you know God? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who searched the scriptures. He says, you have the scriptures, but you do not come to me. You do not know me. My friends, you may be well versed in doctrine. We may be astute in theology. We may be a professor of professors in theology and not know God, not know him. Have no experiential knowledge. Do you, you see what I'm asking? Do we know God on this level? Do we? Do you? Now you may sit there and think and say to me, well, Raya, right, I, I don't know it in this grander level. I've not had a whirlwind moment. I've not had some massive experience. But I know something of what you're saying. I can point to a time. I know something little. Well, praise God. Even if you have the little, it's, it's the bud. It blooms into a flower. It's there. It's real. It's living. It's vital. And so I'm not asking, do you have these massive experiences? We're all very different. But... Do you know in some degree these truths that I'm speaking, these truths that scripture puts before us? Or, and please let me ask you straight, or is what I'm saying completely foreign to you? I may have well have been speaking in tongues. I may have well have been speaking in gibberish. I may have well have been speaking about something else because all of this has just flew right over your head and you're just thinking what is this guy talking about he's crazy maybe i don't know you cannot relate in any way it's a simple thing look, look, think of food um there's certain foods you haven't tasted i haven't tasted i could tell you about a food that you've never tasted and I would tell you how great it is and how wonderful and how, you know, it was delicious. And you would say, well, that sounds great, but I've never tasted that. I don't know what you're talking about. In the same way, when God, when we're talking now about this experiential knowledge of God, is that, is that what it's like? Well, I don't know. There is no time. There is no place. There's nothing in my memory. I, yes, I have theology. Yes, I've learned a few truths, but that's all I have. My friends, be honest with me. Be honest with yourself. Your soul is at stake. And so I would say for the love of your soul, I plead with you. Repent. If that's all you have, if you do not know God experientially, it's not his fault. It's yours. His arms are open. He says, come. 
He's opened the door. He's made the way. But you have hardened your heart. And you have satisfied yourself with a few truths. And you have appeased your conscience. But you do not know him savingly. And so I say to you, repent and believe the gospel truly. Throw away what you have or what you thought you have. Throw away those truths, as it were, that may have bound you and come as a child. Come as a child. Come as a newborn again and say, God, teach me again. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to truly know you. And what does Jesus say? Those who come as children in such a way, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. We have a bird inside. A few birds. This is amazing. And so, I want to do one more thing, and that's just quickly, I would hope, stir up us who are believers. Is he going to land on me? (laughs) If he's about to land on my head, tell me, please. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, no, to stir up us who are believers, to draw to to draw to God afresh, okay? Because we can lose that, can't we? And we can know this and then we can become hardened. And though we are true believers, well, the presence of God can maybe be a, a figment of our memory and an imagination, maybe something we thought we once knew and had. And for time's sake, I will only mention one instance. Christian history is full of this, full of these testimonies. I'll mention one that that stuck out to me as I heard it. I really enjoyed it. There was a man called Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and philosopher. And on the 23rd, this was in the 17th century, he lived. And on the 23rd of November, he had an experience, it says, of the hidden God in the person of Jesus Christ. And it was said that this moment guided all his future life and work. And so after the death of this man, a piece of of parchment paper was found sewn into his clothing. And And on the parchment it recorded, this is what it read, this is what he wrote from that experience. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy and peace, God of Jesus Christ. He's sewn it onto his, to, to look at it, to remind himself. He had come, he was a philosopher. All they do is think. And so, but he had gone beyond that. He had now encountered the living God and it was so transformative to him that he had sewn it into his clothes. Fire. Certainty, assurance, heartfelt joy and peace. And again, time would not permit to to array the witnesses of this reality. You can think of John Wesley, whose heart was strangely warmed as he heard Martin Luther's preface down in London. Or you think of George Whitfield, who who come to, to, to know God personally and says it's the life of God in the soul of a man. You can, I mean, how many can we think of? You can think of Dwight O. Moody, who had that experience of the love of God. And it was so great that he said... I had to tell God to stop because I thought that he was going to crush me. There was one Puritan called John Flavel and he would say that these experiences of God were to him like a day of heaven and he would learn more of God in those few moments with him in his presence than all the theology that he had ever, all the doctrine that he had ever learned by man. 
My friends, are you living your Christian life without this reality? Are you living your Christian life without an experiential knowledge of God? I know when God draws close, you learn more of him in 10 seconds than you would in a lifetime of, of degrees in theology. You know God personally. He becomes your God, your God, your God. That was the difference with these saints of the past. That was the difference with these revivals and these. They knew God on this level. They sought God on this level. What do we know of this, my friends? What do we know of this? I remind you of our Lord Jesus Christ, the most gracious and wonderful Saviour, who came 2,000 years ago and tabernacled among us. He is the true and living temple of God, the visible image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in him. And as you know, for our sins, he offered up himself an eternal sacrifice for our sins. He offered up himself. And where man had thought they had prevailed in snuffing out the light of the world, on the third day, he rose again. And having ascended, he now has all power and authority given unto him. He is kin of kings now and lord of lords now. And he is drawing the nations to himself. And by his blood, we are brought near. And God is brought near to us. My friends, he's made a way for us to know God. He desires, he longs, he is our high priest. His office, his function is to draw us near to God. Will you come to him afresh? Will you leave this place and say, yes, I will seek God again. I will go into my prayer closet that is now full of cobwebs and spiders and I will brush it out and I will again come on my face and say, God, I want to know you. And who knows, maybe this night he will come to you and you will know him and you can say, I've heard of thee with the ear, but now mine eye have seen thee. Well, you may need to seek for a week, maybe a month. But God, I know from experience, as soon as I get real with God, he, as it were, gets real with me. And when I come to him and say, I, I, I just need you, he comes. He doesn't wait. He's a good father. And he's like, I've been waiting for you. It's wonderful. And so we may with able, be able with Job to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray something of good would be done in this moment, Lord. I pray that our lives would be changed and that we would have this experiential reality, that we would know you, Lord, that we would go and press in beyond the veil, even where Christ is now a forerunner for us. May we come to know every single one of us that you are a true and living God. May we know that fire, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. May we know of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And may we have certainty, certainty. May we know with full assurance that we are yours and that you are ours, that I am yours and you are mine. Oh Lord, brighten the face of your saints, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
excellent word, Raya. Thank you. Thank you again for the message that uh, we have heard this morning. It reminds me of Christ and what it says in Isaiah 42 about him. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. It is amazing to see how Job was nothing but dust, and he realizes it, and he speaks it. He says, I repent. He says, I, uh, I, I am but dust and ashes. In dust and ashes, he thought he will die, but he saw God in dust and ashes. Christ did not come to destroy if God wanted to destroy Job, in a split second he's gone. But he came to make him up alive. He made him, he made the, he made him to really boast of God. Because we read downwards in the same chapter that uh, he blessed him so much. Then look at Daniel. He thought he's going to meet death face to face. But who did he see? He saw God. In despair, in when everybody lost him, when everybody just just forsook him, he saw God. Look at that woman. Look at that woman that was taken right in the very act. They brought her to Christ, and she probably was thinking, "He's going to stone me along with these Pharisees." Did he? Woman, go and see no more. God is very close to those who are of contrite spirits, who understand that they are nothing but dust. And this promise that we have in Job, that when he humbled himself, God revealed himself unto him. So he is not here to destroy. He is here to make alive. He is here to give you eternal salvation. And do you... Do you repent? Do you see his? Do you see? Do you see that you need him? If you do, we have the promise. He will come and rescue you up. He will pluck you out. He will not bruise you, and he will not quench you, but he will give you eternal salvation and his spirit to dwell inside of you, and you will be blessed.